Hey listeners, I recently launched an ad-free Serial Napper feed so that you can enjoy the podcast without interruptions. Elevate your Serial Napper listening experience by joining my Patreon community and get yourself an ad-free feed on Spotify. For just $2 a month, you can become a member today and unlock ad-free episodes while still supporting the podcast. It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Mother's Day is almost here. Have you found that truly special sentimental gift for your mom yet? Don't worry, I got you. MyLifeInABook.com is a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Here's how it works. Every week, MyLifeInABook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature And MyLifeInABook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges that she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and your children can treasure forever. Your mom has given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. I loved this idea so much that I've started my own My Life in a Book for my children to have. The thought of my son and daughter being able to learn about my life story as they grow into their own adulthood is truly special. It's been an enjoyable journey of self-reflection for me too, with questions like, which one event made the greatest impact on your life? It's brought back memories I didn't even know I had. I love it, and I know your mother will too. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER for 10% off today. everyone. Konnichiwa. <laughs> Nikki Young here, back with my true crime podcast series, Serial Napper. Okay, tonight we are covering another very famous Canadian serial killer. He's truly the stuff that nightmares are made out of. And actually, I'm kind of shocked that a horror movie hasn't been made about this guy because he gives me full body chills and not the good kind. You may have guessed who I'm talking about, but if you haven't, tonight we're going to cover Robert Picton and his pig farm of horrors. Now, this will be another two-part story because there is a lot to unpack here. So in part one, we're going to talk about Robert Picton's early years and what made him the person that he is and was. And then we're going to start to talk about how things changed on his farm once he took it over. 
Before we jump into it, I want to talk about tonight's sponsor, of course. And I swear the best companies and products find me because this one speaks directly to my soul. Check out I Can't Without Coffee. Legit, this is the company name and nothing has felt more right in my life lately. I Can't Without Coffee is life and apparel that celebrates the good feeling of a successful next step and how coffee accompanies us along the way. I don't think I could accomplish half of the stuff I get done without my morning coffee and afternoon coffee and maybe even bedtime coffee. Check out their website, ICan'tWithout.coffee, and you can also find them on Facebook under the same name. There, you can shop for apparel for the family, home goods, bags, and accessories. I Can't Without Coffee is a brand inspired by fellow coffee connoisseurs. Like, hello, coffee is my inspiration, and I know it's yours too. Visit ICan'tWithout.coffee to enjoy coffee-inspired apparel, home goods, bags, and more. Those at I Can't Without Coffee believe that the first true crime is decaf. Same girl, same. I Can't Without Coffee is a mood, a mantra, an affirmation, and a declaration. Visit ICan'tWithout.coffee and stay tuned for more details about this company halfway through the episode. Now, let's jump into it. Robert Willie Picton was born on October 24, 1949, to his parents Leonard Picton and Helen Louise Picton. He went by the name Willie to mostly everyone, so from here on out, I will refer to him as Willie as much as it makes me uncomfortable to do so. Willie was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck, and he was never tested for brain damage, but his mother was always very protective of him, and he was seen as a little bit slow, so we don't really know how this may have affected him growing up. He wasn't a high achiever in school. Many actually thought that he had a very low level of intelligence. He was really shy and much more quiet than his siblings. He grew up with a brother named David and a sister named Linda. The two boys were raised on the family pig farm. However, Linda actually spent most of her life living in the city while attending a boarding school. Their lives really couldn't be any more different from one another. Pig farming was a Picton family business. In 1905, William Picton, which was Willie's great-grandfather, bought land near a mental hospital in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. Here, they decided they would raise hogs, and it quickly turned into a generational family business. His children grew up and raised hogs, and his children's children grew up and raised hogs, all on the very same farm. Then, in the late 50s, Leonard Picton, which was Willie's father, was forced to sell their farm and moved to make way for a highway that was being built in the area. So, the family picked up and moved, buying 40 acres of swampland for just $18,000, where they moved their blue and white farmhouse to. Once there, they started the pig farming business back up once again. This is where both Robert and his brother David would be raised the majority of their childhood. Again, it was said that Willie was very quiet, and as I mentioned, close to his mother. 
his sister actually described him as being a bit of a mama's boy. Now, speaking of Louise, she was kind of a workaholic when it came to the farm. She'd supervise the kids, expecting them to put in long hours, slopping pigs, and looking after other animals, even on school days. At one point during his boyhood, it's said that whenever Willie wanted to hide from someone, he would crawl into the gutted carcass of large hogs. Obviously, he didn't have a whole lot of friends. In school, he was actually in a special class for children which require more assistance in school, and he did end up dropping out of school altogether when he was 15 years old. His personal hygiene was lacking, both while in school and afterwards. Even after he grew up, he stank of manure, dead animals, and dirt, and his clothes were never clean. This was in part because he actually had a fear of showers, which he claimed was because his mother had always insisted he take baths. I have no idea how that's all connected, but this is what he said. Now, you know, I always like to talk about nature versus nurture because Willie was going to grow up to be an absolute monster. But learning about his younger years and his upbringing, it kind of makes you wonder to yourself how things may have been different if his environment was different. Here's one example of what I mean. When Willie was 12 years old, He kept a young calf as a pet on his family's farm, and he really loved this special friend. He went on to say, I wanted to sleep with it at night. I played with the calf and everything else. He had wanted to keep that calf for the rest of his life as like a long time, lifetime buddy. Two weeks after he got the calf, Willie came home from school and couldn't find his new friend. So he walked around the house, he looked everywhere, and asked his family, where's my calf? He was horrified when they suggested that he look in the barn. He had actually told his calf previously to stay away from the barn because not-so-nice things happened there. When Willie finally summoned up the courage to go look in the barn, he found his pet calf, upside down, cleaned out, and butchered. He was so distraught, he couldn't speak to his family for four days, and he angrily refused their offer to buy another one with the money they got for the meat. He absolutely refused, saying the only calf he wanted was that one, the one that got butchered. Willie would later say that this event in particular changed his thinking for the rest of his life. He said, I finally realized that we're not here forever. We're here for the time we're here for. Willie's father would die in 1978, and his mother followed him to the grave in 1979. The brothers, then in their late 20s, inherited the pig farm with their sister. Now remember, the farmland was purchased for only $18,000 in 1963. Well, in 1994, the farm was actually valued at $7.2 million. In the fall of 1994, the brothers sold a part of their farm for $1.7 million to Eterna Holdings, which was a townhouse development company. 
That same year, the city of Port Coquitlam also bought a chunk of their land for $1.2 million and turned it into a park. In 1995, Port Coquitlam School District bought a piece of the pig farm for $2.3 million, and they built Blakeburn Elementary School on the site. The family had truly struck it rich, growing up from having a pig farm and then being able to sell the majority of the land to turn a huge profit. The remainder of the farm, a 6.5-acre piece of property, was kept by the two brothers, who carried on raising hogs for money. The farm itself wasn't really what you would picture in your head when you're envisioning a farm. You would think grass, greenland, but this was a muddy, disgusting mess with decrepit buildings that were barely standing. Honestly, it really sets the scene for a horror movie. Just looking at it makes you feel like maybe you need to take a shower, like it's that gross. Eventually, the brothers started neglecting the farming operations, and they went on to register a nonprofit charity named the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. Yeah, I'm not kidding. The name of their charity was the Piggy Palace Good Times Society. I have no idea how they got away with this, but they did. They claimed to organize events and functions on behalf of worthy groups like service organizations and sports organizations. In reality, they were actually organizing these crazy, wild rave parties with lots of drugs and alcohol and sex workers. They would drink, they would sell bootlegged alcohol, and they would use illicit drugs. Although Willie's demeanor was that of a friendly, reserved pig farmer, Willie had a wild side, and these parties weren't exactly legal. The long tin shed on 2552 Burns Road was visited by almost everyone in Port Coquillum. And not just badass people. There were two mayors, there were several city council members, local businesses, civic leaders, ice hockey moms, high schoolers. They all came to this place, the Piggy Palace, for functions, dances, concerts, and other kind of recreations. However, that isn't the only crowd that spent time there. A large majority of those who partied there and even went on to live there were very troubled individuals. They were drug users, they were addicts, they were alcoholics, they were sex workers, and Willie would offer them money and a warm place to stay in return for, well, whatever he needed or whatever he wanted from them at the time. Sometimes it was for work, sometimes it was just to keep his secrets and to keep him company. It's common knowledge that Robert Picton was, by the mid-90s, no longer a serious commercial pig farmer. He was basically just a wealthy man living his life. Raising hogs was now more of a hobby than a business. He bought the pigs, he fattened them up, butchered them, and sold the meat to friends. So yeah, there were pigs on the farm who were being bred, raised, and butchered. But that's not all that would be butchered on this farm. Now, you wouldn't know this guy, Willie Picton, had a ton of money just by looking at him. 
He has long, straggly, dirty hair. He was often seen wearing very dirty clothing, like dirty overalls. He looked like he was straight out of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. And while his raging parties were happening at the pig farm, something else was happening around Vancouver's downtown east side. Vancouver's downtown east side is Canada's poorest postal code. These blocks littered with bloodstains, crack vials, and dirty condoms are often called the low track. That's what the term is, or skid row. They hold Canada's highest concentration of prostitution, drug addiction, homelessness, and mental illness. So around this time where Willie is partying it up, sex workers began to go missing and the numbers were so big that people really began to take notice. Those who would usually fill prescriptions, those who would collect checks, those who worked the beat, those who ran the shelters, they noticed that these women were missing. They just disappeared at alarming numbers without a trace. Now, of course, these were transient women who lived somewhat dangerous lifestyles anyway. So at first, police didn't really notice a connection or a trend. They thought they had simply upped and moved on to another place. But those who really noticed the numbers pushed on, trying to sound the alarms. This wasn't typical. This wasn't normal. These weren't just women who were up and leaving. These women were disappearing in unusual circumstances. Patricia Gay Perkins was the first to disappear in 1978, but she wasn't reported missing until 1996. That's how difficult it was to keep track of these women. Six more women vanished between 1978 and 1995. Then the pace picked up in 1995 with three new disappearances. Three more in 1996, six in 1998, and eight more in 1997. Two more were reported missing in 1999. The victims range in age from 19 years old to 46. Most are described on missing persons posters as known drug users and prostitutes frequenting Vancouver's ravished downtown east side. That was at least 29 sex workers who simply vanished in a very short period of time. The missing women reportedly sold sex to feed their intravenous cocaine and heroin habits. Some had HIV, hepatitis, or both. They all left behind their belongings, their bank accounts, children in foster care, and welfare checks. These are women who desperately needed these things to live, especially their welfare checks. So for them to not pick them up meant that something was really wrong. The issue of the missing women was brought to national prominence in March of 1999 when Jamie Lee Hamilton, a transsexual and former prostitute who was now the director of a drop-in center for sex trade workers, called a news conference to bring the disappearances to public attention. At first, friends and relatives of the missing kind of blamed police and authorities for ignoring the situation. Some families were just disenchanted by the police investigation, and they hired their own private detectives to look into it. 
But the overall big problem here is that while these women seem to have disappeared, there was nothing to suggest that anything necessarily bad had happened to them. Meaning, there were no bodies. There wasn't really anything to investigate. This kind of broke my heart reading this, just because they didn't have a body to investigate. They couldn't direct any more resources into investigating what the hell happened to these women. There were murmurs around the city that there could be a serial killer lurking and targeting women in the sex trade, but there was nothing that could be done legally. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in True Accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes? Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors chef-crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors Fresh, Never Frozen Meals that are also dietitian approved. No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day, because that's half the battle, and I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, 
These meals are delicious with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code napper50 at factormeals.com slash napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. When speaking to women who worked these corners, many said that they liked to hang out at Picton's Pig Farm and Piggy's Palace. More and more, Picton's name was being brought forward, and police were about to get their first real lead towards the actual events that were happening on that pig farm. On March 23, 1997, sex worker Lindy Lynn Eistetter ran towards a couple in a car near the back roads of the pig farm. From what this couple could see, she was bleeding and she was holding onto a butcher knife, banging on their windows, asking for help, pleading for help. At first, they thought maybe she was crazy, you know, cracked out and ready to attack. But then they noticed the handcuffs on her wrist and realized that Wendy was really in trouble. So they called an ambulance. At the hospital, Wendy laid out exactly what had happened to her, and according to her, Willie had handcuffed her during a, we'll say, sexual transaction, but she had escaped after suffering several lacerations from a knife. She told police she had disarmed him and was able to stab him with his own weapon before getting away. Oddly enough, Willie sought treatment at Eagle Ridge Hospital, which was the exact same hospital that Wendy was sitting in the emergency room at. He was charged by police with attempted murder, and he was released on a $2,000 bond, which, of course, he was very easily able to pay. The charge was dismissed in January of 1998. And no, I'm not joking. They could not find Wendy to be credible because she was a drug addict and a prostitute. So they believed Willie over Wendy, even with her extensive injuries, because he was more believable than she was. I couldn't believe that the charges were dropped. This was 1998. So many events that hadn't happened yet could have been stopped if this one woman would have been believed. This was a huge mistake because it meant that Willie could continue on doing what he was doing on society's most vulnerable females on his pig farm. And while police had an eye on him, they had no proof of anything, not enough to actually search his property. And so... The search for these missing women continued. After the stabbing, Bill Hiscock, a widowed recovering drug abuser and alcoholic who was now living and working on the farm, became suspicious about Willie. So he called in a tip. 
he talked about how Willie was quite a strange character. And aside from the assault, he said that there were girls going missing and purses and IDs that are out there in his trailer and stuff. That is a direct quote. Hiscock also told detectives that Willie liked to frequent the downtown area all the time for girls. Police recorded Hiscock's statement and a detective accompanied him to the pig farm, afterward vowing to push the higher-ups all the way to the top to investigate. However, subsequent press reports indicate that the farm was searched three times and nothing was found. So Willie would remain on file as a person of interest, but they didn't have enough proof or evidence to actually surveillance him. Back in Vancouver, meanwhile, the list of missing women grew longer with no end in sight. On July 31st, 1999, investigators were able to feature the case on the TV show America's Most Wanted, in which they offered a $100,000 reward for any tips that might lead to an arrest. It prompted over 100 calls to the program's headquarters. However, only 20 of those tips were thought to be useful, but they really started digging into things, looking into absolutely anything that they could, and they also started looking at potential suspects outside of Willie. One of these alternative suspects was Seattle's elusive Green River Killer, who was blamed for the death and disappearance of 49 women, mostly who were prostitutes or runaways, between January 1982 and April 1984. It wasn't until November 30th, 2001, when DNA evidence led to the arrest of 52-year-old Gary Leon Ridgway, who was charged with the murder in four of the Green River slayings. Vancouver police found no evidence that connected him to these missing women in Vancouver. Another candidate that they were looking at was Dayton Leroy Rogers. He was this kind of sadistic foot fetish guy, and his nickname was the Molala Forest Killer. He was stalking prostitutes around Portland, Oregon in January 1987, and by August of that year, he had claimed the lives of eight women and injured 27 other women. He was incarcerated on August 7, 1987. However, he was also rejected as a possible suspect in the Vancouver abductions listed before that date. Then there was Keith Hunter Jesperson. He was from British Columbia, born in 1956, and he was training to join the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, but he was injured and deemed unfit for duty. So instead, he became a trucker. So he hit the road traveling across North America and instead began murdering various women. He was nicknamed the Happy Face Killer cool, I guess, for the smiling cartoon signature that he put on letters that he would send to police. He was arrested in March of 1995. Um, upon his arrest, he claimed to have killed about 160 women, describing them as piles of garbage dumped on that roadside. So he obviously had a real hatred for women. However, unfortunately, again, no link could be found between him and the Vancouver victims. 
In September of 2001, Vancouver Police and RCMP formed a joint task force called Project Evenhanded, and it was basically to replace city police during this investigation because they really needed to focus just on these missing women. It was all happening very quickly, and there were just too many women missing to be ignored. By this time, 31 women had simply vanished in thin air. Around the same time, another source came forward with a very gruesome story. This story identified Picton as a man who was killing and disposing of women. Basically, this guy called into the tip line and the source said he had seen handcuffs in Picton's bedroom and a special freezer in his barn from which he had been served strange meat, which he thought could have been human. Then this other crazy tip came in. It was a guy who said he heard this story from his friend, Lynn Ellingson. So according to this friend of Lynn, she saw something horrific that she would never forget. Lynn had gone with Willie to the downtown east side to help him pick up women. Basically, you know, to pick up a prostitute. They encountered one woman who seemed really nervous and reluctant to actually get into Willie's truck. And it's really sad because I wish she would have trusted her intuition. But when she saw Lynn, she asked Lynn if Lynn was going there too. And Lynn said, yeah, I'm going there too. So this woman felt it would be safe to go. And that often happens with women. If you see another woman is going, you feel a little bit safer. It's almost like this woman is kind of vetting this guy for you. Um, This was a really big mistake on her part. Because later that evening, back at the slaughterhouse, there were drugs, alcohol, lots of fun to be had when Willie and this unknown and unnamed prostitute disappeared into a back room. Suddenly, things became very quiet, and after a little while of just hanging around, Lynn decided to get up and go look for them. As she walked around in a very drunken and drug-induced kind of state, so we can presume, she saw what she thought was a female body hanging from a meat hook. Willie was standing beside this body, cutting strips of flesh off of the legs. Later, Lynn would tell detectives that she hadn't realized that human fat was yellow, which was a very specific detail that gave her story a lot of credibility because not a lot of people know that human fat is indeed yellow. When she walked in and saw this, Willie pulled her inside and threatened her. He basically said, if you say anything, you're going to be right beside her. So when police heard this tip and called her in to confirm her story, she basically refused to testify against him and said that the entire statement was not true. She said she just made the whole thing up and it's very clear that she was saying this because she was truly afraid of what might happen to her if she gave a statement against Willie. But things were about to heat up. And what was about to be discovered was so much more horrific than anyone could imagine. 
Stay tuned for part two coming later this week where we're going to dive right into the crimes that Robert Willie Picton committed. We're going to talk about what he admitted to, what he didn't admit to, what was found on his farm, all of the victims, and all of the latest updates. I want to thank tonight's sponsor, Go ahead and visit ICan'tWithout.coffee to enjoy coffee-inspired apparel, home goods, bags, and more. Honestly, guys, they have the cutest stuff, and if you're a coffee drinker, this is right up your alley. So head on over there and check it out. I've also got the link over in my show notes. If you want to reach out, you can always find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify or whatever app you want to listen to me on. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper or I'm on YouTube. Nikki Young, Serial Napper, all one word. If you don't mind, I would super love it if you could head on over on whatever app you're listening to me on and leave me a review, especially if you're listening on Apple. That is literally the best way to support me, and I super appreciate it. So, until next time, don't be a Dahmer. Bye. I'm Dean. I'm the dad. I'm Laura. I'm the mom. And I'm Crystalyn. I'm the daughter. And together we are Family Plot! The Family Plot Podcast, a show where we discuss history, folklore, true crime, and the paranormal. Minus all the oogie bits. We are PG-13. I'm almost 15 now. Don't ruin the commercial. Do catch us looking into special topics like the origins of fairy Sherlock Holmes. And the trial of Dr. Hyde and Mr. Swope. Find out who Dad Man Crush is. Or what happens in Krista's Corner. But behave you two. So come be a part of the fam. Available on Google, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Family Plot Podcast. Bye!